Can you believe that Lord of the Rings premiered almost 20 years ago? I show the, so uh, the, my kids, well, we all watched the first one last week, and then the boys and I watched the second two throughout this, this past week. So, so we watched all three of them in about the course of a week or so, and, uh, and enjoyed kind of re-engaging. I was, I was in college back when, uh, when these were coming out. And uh, I enjoyed remembering this, this grand storyline and reintroducing it to my, to my children, you know. And the main, the main character in the story is, is a ring. Uh, not, it's, it's not Frodo. It's, it's the ring itself. And this ring was forged, you know, uh, from the fires of Mount Doom. And it's, and it's this one ring that even though it's small and tiny, uh, if it, it, it draws all power to itself. And it is so powerful that if you have this ring, you can control almost anything. And so the plot line is, um, is that, that the, ring's, the ring's power is the main storyline. But by default, the person who is wielding that ring becomes incredibly powerful. And over and over again, uh, it's so difficult to control that though the, the desire by so many people is to do good, as soon as the ring is nearly within their grasp or within their grasp, what ends up happening is the power is too much for them and it corrupts them. They, they would desire to use it for good over and over. You hear this refrain throughout these stories. Though they would desire to use it for good and some desire to use it for evil, but even those who desire to use it for good could not control its power. It was too much. Instead, it controls them. Something so small, but with such great power. Something that seems so harmless, right? Yet it is alive and uncontrollable and set ablaze by the fires of Mount Doom. So this is the storyline. So we're going to look at a passage in James today. And uh, we'll see if you can make any connections. Uh, it's a small passage. And by the way, I love the, the fact that there's two things about James. Number one, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the fact that when James speaks, he speaks as an imitation of Christ and essentially tells the stories of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus over and over again in his own words. He has totally experienced the life that comes from Jesus, his brother, in such a way that he doesn't quote Jesus hardly at all, but he quotes him the entire book, the entire letter. So there's beauty in that. So that's one thing. Second thing is that James loves images, and he totally goes off the rail in this passage with metaphors. Like, his metaphor game just is, is like he loses control. He gives six metaphors in five and a half verses. And, 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 he, and they have nothing to do with each other, except they all speak to kind of the same, the same point. But, uh, but I love that. So I feel the freedom to use as many illustrations that have nothing to do with each other as I want, because James has given me permission. So... We start with Lord of the Rings, and we move into the first verses of James 3. And as soon as we start talking about this, uh, you're going to be tempted to do one of two things. You're going to think about how this relates to other people, or you're going to receive it for yourself. I am asking you to do the second one, okay? Because all gathering long, all teaching long, you're going to be tempted to be like, I know who needs to hear this. And I do too, and it's you, <laughs> and it's me. So let's look at this. All right, uh, and also, so, so James begins this, this chapter, and he's already hinted at the beginning of the book of James. Uh, he has already hinted that this is going to be one of the primary themes in chapter 1. He gives like two or three themes in chapter 1, but there are very few places um, that, 
there are very few themes that you could argue are more central to this. So he starts the chapter with something that allows many of us, not me, but many of us to want to call it a disclaimer, right? Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So those of you who would not call yourselves teachers, you don't have to listen for the rest of this. Except the fact that what James is talking about is about power. James is talking about influence. James is talking about those of you who have influence over other people. Guard it carefully. So I want you to take a moment, and I want you to think in your own life, who do you have influence over? And even the word over might, might be a misnomer. Because I know my kids have influence over me many times, right? So it's not just that even though I'm the authority, but where, where do you have influence? To what people do you have influence? Where do you have a voice? Just think about that for a moment. And maybe hear James saying, now, not many of you should desire to be too influential <laughs> because you know that you'll be judged strictly on how you influence people. It's a little bit of a disconcerting passage. Okay. So, so he goes on, and he says he almost, James almost takes a slight step back. Because, remember, he knows that while Jesus speaks harsh words, Jesus also speaks words full of grace over and over again. You know, who can then enter the kingdom after Jesus says it's so hard? He says, don't worry. There's many rooms, there's a place, there's grace available over and over again. So right after this, James says, listen, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect and able to keep their whole body in check. So here we get the first idea of what we're talking about. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their entire body in check. Okay, here comes the metaphor game. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us. We can turn the whole animal, this tiny little bit on the, mouth of, on the mouth of a horse, this small little piece can turn the animal easily. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is, in, and is itself set on fire by hell. Do you think he has a strong opinion on the power of such a small thing, the ring of power, the one ring to rule them all, the, the, the ring that is set on fire by Mount Doom. This, this is, the, the storyline is that over and over, he gives, James gives these images of saying, listen, our mouths are small. And the word tongue, glossa, is the same word that means both language and the physical body part. Your tongue you know, um, but, but the tongues that you speak, the language that you speak, the words you use, they're like a spark. And think about, think about the, the main theme here is, is the power for the first part of this passage, is the power of the tongue and how uncontrollably destructive it can be. So think about the idea of a spark. The spark that happens, and uh, 
and uh, Dwayne and Lisa went camping this weekend, and uh, they borrowed a couple things from us, and, uh, and I gave them one of those uh, little flint, flint things that are fire starters just for fun. We all know that they're not a great way to start a fire, um, but it's just for fun. And so apparently Jack all, all week uh, rejected any chance of, of starting a fire in a more conventional way and wanted to use the, the and way to go if you're watching, Jack. Kudos. But, but the whole point is that even though all it takes is this small spark to get something going, that's all that you do. You light the spark, and then what ends up happening so quickly is so out of control that it's, it's hard to even imagine that what ended up happening came from something so, so small, so insignificant. And so, so over and over, James is attempting to help us understand that what we see as very insignificant, a single spark, can light a forest ablaze can change the, the course of geography, right? Can level mountains. And we need to be aware of this because every day words are coming out of our mouths. Our tongue is in use. We don't have the privilege of throwing our ring into Mount Doom and getting rid of it. We have to keep it. So that's for the second part of this passage. What do we do? But the first part is to understand, understand how... Um, how great the, the power of our words are. All right? So the first point is all about the power of words that James wants to do. Uh, the irony of that old rhyme, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me, is is so ridiculous that you wonder how it's continued. It's a defensive technique, obviously, when, when children are maybe mocked or made fun of, that this is the defensive response that has happened over the years. But we know for a fact how opposite that is. A broken bone can heal in just a few weeks. But certain words, when they're said in a way that is abusive or tearing down the value of somebody, those things last a lifetime. Those things are, are things that people are wounded for decades because of. And, uh, and so the damages of, of poorly spoken words can last longer than anything that we would imagine. One of the ways right now that our words are, are um, corrupting our society these days is the way that we have started, and this has always happened, but it's acute right now, the way that we have started to speak about groups of people. Uh, Andrew Walls is a British theologian and historian. He was born in 1920s. And, uh, and he pioneered studies on, on the global Christian movement and, African, and the African church. And uh, he speaks theologically of the power of certain types of descriptor words that, is, that, that are what he, would, he calls in the Bible theological swear words. A theological swear word is a word that people used to describe, but what they were actually doing was destroying. So we have words in the scriptures like, Ninevites, like Canaanites, like Cretans, Samaritans, tax collectors, lepers. These are words that were not simply descriptors at the time of their writing and usage. You could argue that they were, which don't we love that these days? Oh, I was just, I was just describing. I was just, I was just describing what, you know, it, it's helpful, right? But what we're really doing is demeaning. And so today, you know, we, we can say that we're simply describing others, but often what we do is we demean them by our descriptions. We use our labels as modern swear words, creating attitudes 
about people that we don't know, stories that we have not heard, and subtleties that we refuse to acknowledge. So today, we have our own theological swear words. Christians use them. They're very coded. Often they're political or ideological, but we use these words not as descriptors, but as demeanors. Using this label so that we can suggest this person can be written off because they are blank, and I'm not going to fill in the blank for you. You have the choice to do that yourself. The temptation is so strong to use words that create walls around people that make it almost impossible for them to climb back over. So what are the words that you might use to wall people in? What are the words that you've felt walled in by? What descriptors have you used to say that somebody might be able to be written off because they're in this segment of society, because they have this viewpoint? Or maybe what are the names that when you hear them, maybe you don't even use them, but you're tempted to forget the human behind them and you decide you know exactly who they are. So just sit for a moment. What are the theological swear words in your life? Uh, the Danish philosopher and theologian Soren Kierkegaard said famously, when you label me, you negate me. When we label people, when we use our words to paint a broad brush, what we do is we say, I've put you in my box and I no longer have to deal with you because I've made a decision about you. These are things that Jesus just doesn't give us the freedom to do. He doesn't give us the freedom to write people off because we either disagree with them or because they're annoying or because we think from afar we can know and understand everything that's going on in their hearts. It's just not the way that Christ followers work because of what we believe about the, the dignity in every single person that James is about to point out in just a moment. So, um, so what happens when we do this, when we, when we hide or use labels, and sometimes it can even be well-meaning, but we must be so incredibly careful of the impact that it causes. Opportunities for dialogue and for understanding kind of burn down like a forest. They're set aflame by these small and subtle words that come out of our mouths. Um, and, and, and as a result, people have become quite harsh with one another. Uh, so we have to be careful. <laughs> Here's an interesting thing. And, and I've actually been on the opposite side of this statement on a number of occasions. Because I think the pendulum sometimes swings back and forth. But we have to be careful not to decide that because we can cite Jesus speaking really harshly to the Pharisees, or we can cite Jesus flipping over a table, that we forget all of the other things that Jesus taught along the way as well. Just like many times Christians have been very passive in the face of, um, of wrong and complicit. And, and afraid to speak up. I get that. And, and we need to understand that Jesus was unafraid to speak truth to power. But at the exact same time, we can't decide that because we have this one story, that means that we get to, uh, get to throw out the same anger at the same times in the same way. We are not God. And so that's why over and over you see in the scriptures this challenge to be gentle and careful with your words. Because we do not know the human heart like God does, like Christ does. And sometimes we can conflate our role with the role of Jesus. It doesn't mean we don't speak prophetically. It doesn't mean we don't speak truth. But there is a way in which we go about doing it that honors the character of Christ. Uh, so, yeah, very, very quickly we can use this idea of, of the prophetic voice um, to lead us accidentally to a lack of love and a lack of self-control in our daily interactions, personally and like in person and digitally. 
and the fruit of those moments is often non-existent. Okay, um, but back to this label, the label thing. Maybe that's why social media is such a firestorm uh, right now. It's this spark effect. The further that our words become disconnected from relationships, the stronger the temptation is not to speak in love. Uh, I, I'm not convinced that we realize the long-term impact of just saying our piece. We need to be very careful about how we wield these things. We've adjusted to this cancel culture that says that if we don't agree on everything, it naturally flows, that we cannot be in relationship, or worse, that your life should be completely destroyed. This is not the way of Jesus. It's a long, difficult journey to discern what this looks like, and we need to trust the Spirit for it. Um, but adopting this attitude of, of thinking that our opinions uh, need to be constantly thrown at other people without any understanding of where they're coming from or what the impact might be will only lead to a trail of burned bridges and broad assumptions. So this is why over and over again the scriptures say be careful about the words that we say. So this, this passage that has begun with look at how crazy powerful our words are, look at how uncontrollable and destructive our words are, now in the second half it takes a turn. Okay, so we've got more metaphors coming, but, uh, but now we're talking um, about something different, something new. Because, uh, because James moves, to, uh, moves away from a metaphor for two sentences, I believe, and then he goes back to metaphors for the rest of his talk. But for these two sentences, he gets really down to the, to the gritty, nitty-gritty part. And here's what he says. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. <laughs> Do you notice that in verse 9 here, with the, the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings, is the anti-great commandment? Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love, uh, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love others. And now he's saying, and now James is saying, listen what's happening you're loving God, and you're cursing others, under your breath or out loud. <gasps> but what you're doing is the anti-great commandment. Because he says, because what? what? What do we need to know about humans? What keeps us in the way of Jesus? He says right here, what keeps us in the way of Jesus is remembering that every human being has been made in God's likeness. Oh, this is so simple, and it's so difficult. I have so much trouble constantly reminding myself of that constantly reminding myself that the world is not binary between good and evil. The world is a constant journey of us within our own spirits <laughs> trying to let the light win by trusting Christ, by, by connecting with God's heart. But in doing so, we have to acknowledge that other people are also created in God's image and deserve to be treated as such. So, so this, this is such an important thing. You know what else I love? This can become a very condemning passage. But do you see something small that James does in his writing, in his fourth word there? You notice how he says, with, it, with the tongue we praise our Lord, and with it we curse human beings? You notice how he's not, there's no accusatory here. There's no saying, I can't believe that you are doing this. James is saying, hey, this is the, this is the human reality. This is the temptation. We, we, we love God, but the whole brother relationship of that love for God, which is supposed to be love for neighbor, we, we ignore. But you can't have one without the other. 
It's not possible. Not if you're truly connected with God. It will naturally lead you to truly, genuinely stop cursing your brothers and your sisters or the people that you don't know or those others. So, so this is a very, very important part, and I just love the humility that's represented in this we. You know, James doesn't take the authority of Jesus acting like he's above this. <laughs> it's that he says, we struggle with this, friends, but we, this cannot be long-term. Okay, so, uh, so, so what we did is we start with the power of our words, but what is happening here is that uh, James is then moving us to the state of our heart. And this is a really crucial thing because this is where we have to understand that we move beyond self-control. Self-control is good, but it's not the end game. Listen to the metaphor that, uh, that is given next. So, out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? The answer is no, by the way, if you're not aware. Uh, my brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? See, he's going nuts here. And then, then he goes back to the salt. Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So, by the way, does that sound familiar a little bit, those words? Right? How about Jesus in Matthew 12? Paul, or I keep saying Paul, I apologize. James loves doing this. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees, and they've just, <laughs> they've just um, accused him of being Beelzebub. They've accused him of being a demon, Jesus. And, uh, and so Jesus is essentially saying, if you want to go there, we can go there. But Jesus essentially says, if, if this is where you're going, your authority is going to be completely undermined. Because, because what, you're, what you're saying is so, so wrong that you're showing that there's some bad fruit down there. And that means that maybe the rest of your teaching isn't trustworthy either. So anyways, here's what he says. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For, out, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And this is the important part. The mouth will eventually always speak what the heart is full of. So self-control will only take you so far. Holding your tongue will only take you so far because the tongue is set on fire by hell and it'll break free. That's the storyline. So, so by getting to the heart, he's saying understand the power of your words, but then understand the state of your heart because the spring can't bring both fresh and salt water. So what has to happen is the spring has to change so that when things do bubble up, it's fresh. Uh, uh, the word salty is a word that wasn't around. I mean, like, it was in if, if you had popcorn that someone had put too much salt on. But, but it wasn't around when I was a kid in terms of, like, the lingo. My boys use the word salty all the time. Oh, somebody's salty. So what's that about? And, and so I, they, they explained to me that salty is like um, being a sore loser or uh, getting argumentative or acting bitter because things don't go your way. So you're just salty because of it. Uh, and I found that interesting, um, given the fact that, that the salt water here is what's springing out, saltiness, instead of fresh water. This is not, an e this is not equal opportunity um, here with, with this image that James is giving. He's suggesting fresh water's better. <laughs> okay, so fresh water and salt water. Salt water is akin to the cursing of other people, to putting them down. And that word curse means, it means, um, it means bringing harm, bringing harm on someone. And so, 
Uh, so our words get salty when we speak selfishly before thinking. Our words get salty when we assume another's motives. Uh, our words get salty when we must have the last word in every conversation. Friends, we, we can be salt without being salty, and we can be light without blinding people. It is possible to speak truth and honesty and love that is not always easy to speak or to hear without doing so in a way that damages somebody else. Uh, being a faithful Christian does not mean that we always are shouting even if the words that we're using are the right idea, the right word. It doesn't mean condemning. What we use our words to speak for is something better and more beautiful rather than just speaking against those who oppose it. And I think that might be the way forward. Dwayne and I were talking about that for just a couple minutes right before this gathering. You know, there's a real difference um, in, in saying that I feel strongly about something and I want to see something good accomplished in the world. So I'm going to speak about the good I want to see accomplished in the world. The beauty. I want to get behind that. That's different than throwing your rocks at the person that's against that beauty. It might have the same effect of, of sharing, this is what I really believe in, but it's doing so by, by proving the hope that you have and not just criticizing the opposition. And I think that there's a difference. <sighs> All right, James started by talking about the ring's power, but by the end, or the ring's power, listen to me, um, the tongue's power, um, but by the end, right, he's hinting that if one's heart is pure, they might actually be able to wield it. Frodo was the only one that got to be able to wield the ring. It almost destroyed him, but eventually he had to destroy it. But his heart was pure enough that he could walk with it without being completely consumed. Nearly, but not completely. But again, we don't have that privilege, all right? So we can't cease to speak. So instead what we do is we begin by surrendering the deepest places in us, the deepest needs. We surrender the need to be right all the time. We surrender the need to be seen as impressive. We surrender the need to win. We surrender the need to get back at someone for hurting us. We surrender the need to defend ourselves at all costs. We surrender the need to set everyone right constantly. Because we realize that if we cling to those needs, eventually pride, defensiveness, anger, hurt, they stay in us and they find a way to bubble out of our mouths in harmful ways. That salt water that springs out. So, um, so the state of the heart moves us beyond self-control. Uh, it moves to transformation and transform thinking about other people. Uh, so, right, like I said, self-control means you try to stop the salt water from bursting out. But transformation in Christ, that means that when the water does burst, it's fresh. It doesn't sting. It doesn't stain. It doesn't damage. It's consistent with what's under the surface and what's seen. Um, the salts no longer be, no longer there, not just held back. And that means that we have to confess to Jesus. We have to invite Jesus to constantly be changing us. We have to sit in silence with God. So, um, and, and, and so when that happens, the final stage of all of this, when that happens is that we begin to see what our words are intended to be used for. Because the words are still powerful. So it's not just a warning, it's an invitation, Right? So elsewhere in the, um, in the epistles, what we see Paul writing is, don't let any unwholesome talk, corrupting talk, talk that rips people down, come out of your mouths. But what is helpful for the building of others up according to their needs, that's so challenging because we have to actually listen and find out what other people's needs are 
so that we can build them up, that it might benefit those who are listening. And then in Philippians, don't, don't do anything with grumbling or arguing. It says when you do that, you, you start to look like, like God, God's children. But then he says, this is what happens. You will shine among people like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. So beautiful. Shine among people like stars in the sky. This is the impact of choosing not to be a complainer, choosing not to whine, choosing not to give in to this need to, to constantly bring the focus back to yourself. Oh, I love that. Just think about the good news here. This message can feel really uh, should-y, all right? And, and we don't believe in uh, should-ing on people at LifePath. All right, we feel pretty strongly about that. Just you should blank, you should blank, you should blank. Not, not always helpful. So what's the good news in a story like this? The good news is that Jesus is the one that brings both grace and transformation. He forgives us when we fall short. He shapes us in such a way that we become less and less brackish when we turn to him. Less salty, more fresh, more clean, more life-giving. Salt water is not useful to people, but Jesus transforms our hearts. So think about this. How would it feel? I want you to have this image as, as, we, uh, as we go out. What if people walked away from interactions with you this week and they felt these two things? They treated me like they truly cared about me. And secondly, that was refreshing. Think about a drink of cold water. And what if the conversation that you had was about an area that you disagreed at? And they walked away saying that was refreshing. It's possible. It's possible if we are people of reconciliation. That we can love and value people while still talking about hard things. While still engaging uh, with what we're passionate about. It's possible that we cannot give in to our need to complain or nitpick our family members when they're getting on our nerves. And I, I know that's not really happening with, um, with people much these days. Because we're all out and about so much. That's sarcasm right? But, but we can do this. We can, we can have, even when I'm exhausted, if I tap into the power of Christ, I can have beautiful conversations with my children because I realize that what's really going on is I'm the one that's irritable, not them. <laughs> and so I trust Jesus in these areas and I let it transform me. And even when I say, hey, can we, can we talk about this behavior? Can we change this thing? Or can I talk to you? I value people if I'm grounded in Jesus. I love, I listen, I care, and they feel refreshed afterwards, not condemned. Ah, oh, it's beautiful. So just imagine that. And God uses you to draw people to himself in those moments, without question. That is one of the greatest ways that God draws people in. So let's just ask God to transform us from the most normal moments, like the conversations with our parents or our children, um, or our roommates or our coworkers but also how we express ourselves through our screen-based connections, all the way to big moments and major conversations and conflicts and wounds. Let's just pray that God transforms our words and makes us fresh. Lord, we admit openly that this is a really hard thing, and we join James in acknowledging the power of the words, sometimes acknowledging how we've been hurt by the words of others, maybe when they didn't even intend it. But today, Lord, we focus on what we can do, and we ask you to empower us to be people who faithfully follow your heart, to be people whose hearts are actually transformed beyond simply self-control. We know that's a start. 
Lord, please help us in the areas that we are just struggling right now to hold it together. Help us speak words of life and love so that we might shine your light into the world. Amen.